After 14 seasons in the NFL, Greg Olson retired as one of the top five tight ends of all time. Now he's a rookie all over again, starting a new career in sportscasting. In this episode, Greg shares what it was like to play in the Super Bowl, what it's like to learn a new skill on national TV, how his son's journey to overcome a rare heart condition inspired him to help others, and what it means to find your edge as a top competitor. This is Three Things with Greg Olson. Today on the podcast, we have uh, a neighbor, a friend, a opponent on the basketball court, an amazing <laughs> guy, and uh, in, in a legend from the, his NFL playing days. Uh, Greg Olson, welcome to the podcast. Appreciate you having me. This has been a long time coming. I feel like we've talked about this now for a few months. Uh, Happy to be here. Pumped to have you. Uh, let's talk about football. This weekend, two amazing matchups, um, great Super Bowl lineup. What's going on with all this parody? You know, I think the, the thing that makes the NFL so special, you know, from the beginning was they, they wanted to be the anti-NBA, more the anti-MLB model where every year all 32 franchises, all 32 home cities all had the hope that one day they might be a year or so away from competing for a Super Bowl. And you see it this year with the Bengals. You know, three years ago they, they had the number one overall pick. You know, they had won one game the year before. They draft Joe Burrow and here they are three years later, and they've completely turned it around. That's, that's the vision of the NFL. They want every team who's at the top, everything is set up for them to regress to the, to the mean, and every team at the bottom, they want to elevate you to, competitive, you know, to a competitive situation. So every year you see these teams go from worst to first in their division, you know, and, and the Bengals are probably the best, the best example in a long time of a team that no one really thought had a chance, and here they are one game away from being Super Bowl champs. Uh, we'll come back to the Panthers, but that gives me hope. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a how long is the pod? That's a long conversation. <laughs> uh, so it is amazing how quarterback play when you really get to this level uh, in you know, kind of how deep you get into the season really matters. Why is it so clear now that if you don't have an elite quarterback, you don't have a chance? Yeah, and you hear it a lot. You know, it's a quarterback driven league, and, and that's probably more so the case than ever. If you don't have high level and in some regards elite quarterback play, you really find yourself on the outside looking in. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think this is a salary cap league, right, where that one position for the most part is going to be the largest chunk of your cap. And because you're taking, you know, even to bring in a middle of the road guy is going to cost you $20 million, right? So if you're going to have a huge uh, percentage of your cap every year to one position, when I have to fill a roster of 54, you can only chop it up so many ways. That guy has to elevate any holes. He has to elevate any you know, poor play around him. He needs to be the difference. It's a passing league. You know, the new analytics-driven approach that a lot of these teams are facing, the, you know, the whole idea of running the ball, like that is really slowly going away. Uh, you know, they make it really hard on teams to play defense. So the quarterback really ends up at the end of the day being the biggest mover of the, of the sticks. And um, he can move that meter more than any single player on the field at any time. So a quarterback will hide a lot of sins. Absolutely. And, and that's why there's really two formulas for teams winning. You either have the elite guy that you pay $40 million and he takes up 20% of your salary cap. Or you have a really, really cheap guy who's on a rookie contract who you haven't had to pay significantly. And now I can use that extra cap space every single year to build out the team around him. The Joe Burrow effect is going to be they have a four-year window from when they drafted him. So they're on year three. So they got another year, maybe two, 
where they're going to have Joe Burrow, whatever they're paying him. In two years from now, Joe Burrow is going to be the highest paid quarterback, you know, at the time whenever he signs the contract until someone jumps him. All of a sudden now that's $40 million a year that's allocated to him. That's now not allocated to your left tackle, to your best rush end. It's a whole different way of structuring your team. And that's why when you take a quarterback high and you have him on four or five year contract, you better win now because if he has success, he's just getting more expensive. <laughs> and as a, as a result, the rest of your roster doesn't have the same money to go around. What makes somebody an elite quarterback? You know, I, I think that's the, that's the question that everybody, that everybody is really searching for. And I, and I don't think it's a coincidence that if you look at the best, the historically the best quarterbacks that have played, the Peyton Mannings, the, um, the Tom Brady's, who I just saw today, just announced, officially announced his retirement after all that craziness of the right. weekend we talked about. Right. I think you'll never find that they're the best athletes. They're never the fastest. They're never the biggest, strongest guy. They're never going to wow you, right? This new age of quarterbacks, we'll see how these guys match up. You know, the Mahomes, the Lamar Jacksons, you know, even Josh Allen, a little more of an athletic runaround guy. But traditionally, they were never the best athletes on the field. And I just think for the course of their entire career, from the time they were little kids, they had no choice but to find edges amongst their peers. To survive, they had to find an edge that wasn't physical. And a lot of that is where they built from an early age, you know, even youth all the way through high school and college, men, you know, the mentality of competition, being a competitor, finding my edge in my preparation, doing things that other people weren't willing to do so that I could achieve things that they're more physically capable of doing, but they're not willing to do what I'm willing to do. I think so many of these quarterbacks have that mentality where I'm going to find my edge no matter what it takes because I can't just rest on my physical laurels. I can't just say, oh, I'm going to run faster than you, jump higher and throw the ball. That's very rarely the case with these Hall of Fame type guys. Does that change with this young crop of quarterbacks who are a little bit more dependent on their athleticism? Maybe. That's kind of where the direction of the game is going. But traditionally speaking, these guys just have that mentality. They have that fight. They have that you just can't that you can't coach right? it. You yeah. can't coach but, what they have. But it's it's a bit of this notion of like the intangibles come from adversity. Absolutely. Right. In 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 not being the most gifted at anything. Totally. I think it's the greatest advantage we have. A hundred percent. And think these guys, Tom Brady's probably never been the best athlete, pure athlete from the sense of speed, jumping, size. I mean, look at his combine tape. From the time he was probably a little boy playing football or basketball, whatever the sport was. In order for him to survive, yeah. he always had to find that edge. And his edge, probably along the ways, was his mentality, his intelligence, his ability to find holes in his game and plug them. He's been doing that for 40 years. Over time, you accumulate and you develop that mentality that now all of a sudden you get to the highest level. It, you don't just turn it on. Right. It's accumulated. It's learned. This is learned behavior and learned mentality from the very beginning of when he started playing sports as a young kid. You know, I did, uh, we're going to miss him. To see the yep. greatest, you know, of this generation. I think it's yep. hard to say greatest of, of, of all time. But, Absolutely. Um, he's, he's, he was amazing to watch. Why at his age, arguably he was a top three player this year. What happened? It, he's, he's the absolute outlier. But he's LeBron the, is the same. LeBron right? is the Nadal same. Nadal is the same. Djokovic, you yep. know. like I feel like the best players – the ones that I've both been around and ones that I've kind of studied and observed from afar, they have the uncanny ability to kind of reinvent themselves, right? So take LeBron. 
the, the way LeBron plays now and the way LeBron played 20 years ago when he was a 19-year-old entering the NBA are very different players, right? And I'm sure if you asked him or you asked any older player that's still finding success, if they had one wish, it would be they wish they had the mental approach, the intelligence, the, the experience that you can't teach. You, can't, you have to just earn that. They wish they could go back in time and apply that to themselves when they were 20 right. and they were jumping out of the gym and he could just out-athlete you. He could just jump over you. He, he's now he, – his physical stills obviously are still elite, but they're not what they were when he was yeah. 18. Yeah. But he has just developed 20 years of experience, 20 years of understanding how to play, 20 years of seeing the game through a very unique set of eyes to go along with a skill set that relative to his age is still – well above average right 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 the ability to gain experience and gain perspective and approach over a long set of time is a huge advantage for players as they get older and they have the ability to be honest with themselves reflect and almost reinvent their game year in and year out and and i think all of them have in common like this incredible determination uh to keep learning about how to stay fit yep how to how to cheat father time in, in a way that probably didn't exist back then when people would quit at 30 because they were too old. Absolutely. And, and we're just seeing people really, and we're seeing athletes and, and really people in, in general, just really search for those answers, yeah. right? And if they're not readily available, they're out there. You need to find the right people. You need to f build the right team around you. Obviously resources and money. That's not, that's not a factor for a lot of these right. guys, but you have to have this un this unwavering desire to continue to pursue it. It gets very easy. Complacency is like the basic human instinct, right? It's I've found success. The most, the most human instinct thing is to just take the foot off the gas and settle in. I've done enough. I'm good enough. Certain guys are just wired where nothing is ever good enough. And in some ways in life, that could be a real kind of tiring and a real exhausting <laughs> approach. But in the sports world, a lot of these real type A, super driven guys have the ability to just outlast everybody. And it's because they're internally motivated. They're not motivated by money. They're not motivated by fame or success. They have this never ending burning desire to compete. And I'm never going to allow someone to be better than me. And if you are going to be better than me, you're going to have to kill me. Like that's, that's how these guys think. And it's probably not the healthiest approach to living a normal life as a parent and as a husband. It's probably taxing. But it's a really good approach if you want to be a 20-plus-year professional athlete. How much of that do you have? I have I, – for a long time in my life, I had too much of that. And yeah, I noticed that on the basketball court I had the other too day much we were that. playing. It, it <laughs> you know, came out. I, it's, I, that, again, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that along the lines of Tom Brady or LeBron James at, at all. But, like, that was always the only way I could survive. So I, I show up to the University of Miami as an 18-year-old kid from North Jersey, surrounded by the best kids, not only from South Florida, which is a whole different world to begin with of athletes, but the, they had their hand. At the time I went there, we were Alabama. Right. In early 2000s, Miami was Alabama. So here I am. I stepped foot on campus. I learned really quickly that if I was just going to count on being the tall kid who could run pretty good for his size at the time, like it wasn't going to be good enough. I was never going to play. So I needed to make a decision very early in my college career. Like, if you are ever going to play here, forget playing professionally. If you are ever going to play here, you need to find an edge over all these guys, both at your position and within just the context of the team, who are more talented than you, they're faster than you, they have more natural ability than you. What is going to be your edge? 
And I needed to find that. I, w- I had to outwork anyone. I had to be smarter than anyone. I had to study more than anyone. I really had to mine my craft because I was not going to survive if I just relied on physical qualities. You know, you can say the same thing about our mutual dear friend, Luke Keekley. Yep. Right? He just Absolutely. He did exactly the same thing. Exactly. When people look at Luke, and I remember when I first met Luke and saw Luke and just was kind of evaluating him from afar, you if someone said what made him so good, you had to really sit and think about it. You couldn't really put your finger on it right away. You really had to study him and understand what went into making him a Hall of Fame player. And it was, yes, he was physically gifted. Luke's very strong and he can run. Like, that's obvious. But he was not the biggest, strongest linebacker in the NFL. At any point in his career, there was times he wasn't even the biggest, strongest linebacker on his own team. It's true. He, early on, he learned, whether he learned it himself or someone exposed him to it, his ability to study, his ability to predetermine what the opponent's going to do and always be one or two steps ahead of what you were going to do against him was the best I've ever – he's the best football player I've ever been around at any position. So a little bit of insight. You and I have been playing a little one-on-one hoops. (laughs) Luke and I have been playing a little bit of one hoops. And it's so interesting to watch both of your approaches (laughs) to this. Like Luke is studying – non-stop video of hoops now yep. he shows up with new footwork the other day i'm like what is this <laughs> that doesn't surprise you me at all we're running through me just, like I am i'm just going you. 100 miles an hour and hope for the best and listen i there was man those i'll tell you what though that first day i went home when you beat you beat me pretty good i went home and my i'll never forget my kid my 10 year old's like dad how'd basketball go and i was like i'm gonna be honest bud daddy lost he's like you lost to that old man? <laughs> I was like, I lost. I said, Rick is a really good basketball player. Like, daddy is not, has never been a great basketball player. But, like, you know, you don't do things for a while. You even get worse. Yeah. That next workout when Blake, our other mutual friend who, who works <laughs> yeah, with yeah. you and, and also trains my, young, my oldest son, he came over. You bet your ass. I had my, my shoes laced up, and I was in the driveway. And that next two or three workouts, I was out there doing it with my kid. <laughs> and I felt it the next time you came. How funny is that? Oh, oh man. It right, was a blast. Uh, let's, uh, let's talk about – leadership um urban meyer yep. comes into the nfl and completely flops um i know you have some very interesting thoughts about you know leadership on a football team so tell us what do you think makes an elite nfl coach you know i i think when you look at the best coaches i i, I think when you really get a look behind the scenes you know I, I was around i only played for three head coaches in my career the longest being ron rivera and then this year, I had a really interesting kind of look behind the curtain in my production meetings with Fox, getting ready to call games, you know, speaking to probably 20 NFL head coaches for extended periods of time and really picking their brain about their approaches and how. So you really get my approach to leadership is I don't care if you're coaching a 10 year old baseball team or a professional football team. There are certain qualities and there are certain threads that carry on that hold true regardless of the lit. And I think where a lot of coaches you brought up Urban Meyer where a lot of coaches go wrong is I'm the only answer. I'm the head coach. I am the authority. I am the only person who has the answer to every question. And I just think the inability to delegate, the inability to have people be able to speak truth to you as a position of power, I think is so dangerous. I think the co- the best coaches and slash best leaders have the uncanny ability where every time they step in the room, they've earned, not demanded, they've earn the respect of everybody, whether it's a fellow coach, whether it's a player, whether it's 
the janitor, whether it's the ticket office, whoever, whatever aspect of the company or of the business that it is, every one of those sections, he has earned your trust due to how he deals with you, how he respond, how he speaks to you, the respect he gives you, the accountability he demands back, right? Like all of those relationship things. I think where these coaches go wrong is they want to demand that respect out of you, but they don't feel like they ever need to give it back. Mm. They feel like it's just like a one-way street that like, I'm the head coach. I was hired for this position. So just by the sheer, you know, the hierarchy of our program, you have no choice but to respect me. And what happens is they get a lot of begrudging support and respect. I have no choice but to respect you, but I, I, I really don't. It's just a bad working environment. They have no ability to give delegation. They have no ability to say, I've hired you as my offensive coordinator, my defensive coordinator, whatever it is. You've earned that respect until you prove it wrong. I'm going to give you that trust that you're going to go out and do your job I hired you to do. Now, if you don't do it, we're going to have to have a conversation and potentially make a change. But in the meantime, I'm not going to micromanage you because you've been brought here to do that. All of those things hold true, and I think the coaches that do it the best have the best success. Yeah, those are great leaders. And by the way, you reminded me of something is you are not a leader because you're in charge. Others make you a leader. Yeah. Right? Like they decide if you're a leader totally. or not, right? But but. Yet technically in the NFL, it seems like there's an elite level and the coaching level. Um, you know, they, they, they see things other coaches don't understand. Is that from the outside looking in? Absolutely. Certain teams have a built-in inherent advantage over other teams, whether it's schematically, which I would argue is the least important factor. Like there is schematic advantages, X's and O's, my plays versus your plays. Certain teams have varying degrees of advantage or disadvantage yeah. at any time. The best teams, as far as to your point about what the top level coaches see is attention to detail, the, way, the ability to communicate situations, the ability to not make things super long and drawn out. They're, they're clear, they're concise. If there is questions, it's an environment where, coach, I have no idea what you're talking about. Can we cover it again? And there's no fear of being put down, being the, right. like, they, they create this really positive workplace environment where I know I'm going to be held to really high standards. And if I fall short, you're going to be the first to tell me, but you've also created a place where I'm empowered. I'm empowered to take ownership over my career, my role on this team. And if at any point I'm unclear of what that role or position is, you've created an ability as my boss that I can approach you and we can have this conversation one-on-one. So I leave, I might not like the role you've laid out for me. I might not like my responsibilities, but it's clear, it's clear, and I can accept that as a player, as an employee, whatever it is. And I think the best coaches create those atmospheres. Highly, highly competitive, high, high levels of accountability, yet there is this positive, open, two-way street back and forth where at any given moment we can have a conversation so I know exactly where I stand, where I need to improve, and what my role and expectations are going forward. Now everyone can go and operate in a position where they're comfortable and they're clear of what the expectations are. And it's interesting because in college football, the college has all the answers, right? Yep. They, they, it's young players. Usually the very good players are you know, freshmen, sophomores yep. before they leave. In the NFL, you have to almost let the players play. The Absolutely. great coaches, there's a third element here, which is you know, how do you create a freedom for the player to improvise and to do their craft and not be robotic. I think college coaches come in and they try to be so robotic, they, totally. they, they kill pros. Absolutely, and I think that's the, that's the balance that you see is how, how do these coaches who know one world, how do they straddle that line, be true to what's gotten them there, 
but also adapt to this new environment. And you touched on it. The college game is set up that your best players typically have to be very young because if your best players are seniors, they're gone. They just got drafted the year before, right? right? It's just the setup of the system. And you're always bringing in 20 or so new players every year. So you consistently fill the back end of your roster, which either forces guys in front of them, they push them out, they transfer, they move, they get drafted. So you're always replacing in the NFL at the college level, 18 year old kids, give or take. That's your new crop every single year. So as a result, the coach is the face of the program. Because in three years, your best players, they're gone. They're They're wearing professional jerseys. The only consistent force and face of a college program is the coach. So they have no choice but to really take a everyday, almost a micromanage. I know like it's a bad term, but like almost a micromanaging type of a role because they really have no choice. Now flip it into the NFL. There's kind of an NFL mantra where for every rookie you start, you can equate that to at least one loss, right? You start five rookies. The best you can do is 12 and five. That's like give or take. And then any loss on top of that is just because you didn't play worth a crap. That, that kind of holds true. Young players in the NFL get you beat. Now, you have to get their, young, their time in early because that's the only way they get time under task to eventually grow and become a veteran player. They don't just like all of a sudden turn into their fifth year and become a good player after never playing. But the, the NFL approach is I need my strongest leaders to be my players. My locker room needs to be run, hopefully by my best players, but they don't always have to be my best players. I need my best leaders. Mm. It could be your backup linebacker. It could be your special teams captain. Mm. You hope it's your quarterback. In most cases, it is. You hope it's your middle linebacker. In a lot of cases, it is. But it doesn't have to be. You need your players to lead and establish the culture of that team. It is not a coach-driven culture. And the best player, the best coaches understand that. The Andy Reeds of the world, he's not out there telling you how brilliant he is. He's not out there taking away from what Patrick Mahomes does or what Kelsey does. To your point, he's letting those guys play because that's in the best interest of them player and that's as a whole in the best interest of the team he's not telling Patrick Mahomes to stop running around in circles that's what he is let him be true to himself and most times it works out pretty good except last week I love the story of the week before when when uh, they called the play and Kelsey looked at Patrick he's like I'm not running that I'm running something else (laughs) have I told you how many times and again that comes with experience and playing together there were times in the huddle Hmm. where Cam and I would just be like Nope. That, now, again, you can't go completely rogue because you have to really know what everyone else on the route right. is doing. So, right. like, you can't, like, run into their areas. That's how balls get, like, picked and stuff. But if you have a good understanding of what the entire framework and structure of the route concept is and you have a real good ability to see the game through the s- same set of eyes with the quarterback, there's a lot of freelancing that goes on, and it's very hard for the defense to account for because the defense all week is preparing for – lines on a piece of paper right right he wants to throw this ball to kelsey two two yards inside the numbers at 12 yards okay so that's where that spot linebacker is going to drop because that's well i don't need to run there like our rule with 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 cam that we always had for 10 years was i'm just going to run where they're not i love that just run where they're not like we don't need to make this super complicated if if i'm supposed to be at 12 yards and he's at 12 yards i'm gonna go 10 yeah and if he's two yards inside the hash and i'm supposed to be there i'm gonna go the outside hash look right like this isn't we're not, we're not running lines on a piece of paper. The defense is guarding lines on a piece of paper. We need to have a little freedom within the context to make good decisions and be in the right place. And at the end of the day, just be where they're not and throw the ball. That's it. Be where they're not. 
Believe it or not, like that. that's route running in the NFL, right. man. I'll you, tell know, you, you know, in business, I always think that uh, my, my, my analogy to that would be the only way to make money in business is to find an uncrowded trade. Because so, so if something is a crowded trade, all the margin is already out. It's the uncrowded trade that presents the opportunity. That's really interesting. Run where they're not. Yes, run where they're not. That's a, that's a, I feel like that might be. I mean, you might have to add that to the lobby when you walk in, amongst all your community mantras. I feel like run where they're not could be an interesting one. And you know, you can take all the credit for it. I don't need any of it. I can see the, I can see the bill coming. Nah, in. we'll make it up at the basketball court. I'm afraid of what's coming. Hey, um, two two more things in the NFL before we change topics. Um, first, we got to talk about the Panthers, and and I yep. know that. You mentioned the importance of having an elite young quarterback, which at least to this day, we, we don't. And, right. and then maybe something changes miraculously. Cap space, which I think, as I understand, we're kind of at yeah. the bottom of that. And um, and just, just continuity of a program, so to speak. So I, I don't, you know, I don't mean to be kind of critical. I think yeah. it's a reality of where we Absolutely. are. What, what, is, what is the path forward for the Panthers from your point of view? Yeah, I mean, it all starts with finalizing the quarterback. So typically you give a coach three years, right? The three-year turnaround is kind of the window where you inherit a team that obviously had some holes. Cam had left. Luke retired. I was gone. So, like, the team didn't look like the team it did the four years prior out of no fault to anyone, right? right. It was just time to move in a different direction, and the decisions were made that were made. You typically have a three-year window. You, know, you see the Bengals are a great, a great example of that. You can turn it around. When McVay took over the Rams a few years ago – they turned it around in maybe two years, I think. Yeah, I think in his second year he made the Super Bowl, if not maybe his third. So typically that three-year window is, is what you're looking for. So they're entering their third year. And, and I do think it was fair that Rule got this third chance because typically the first year you're just establishing culture. There was COVID. There was a million things. And it actually went fairly well. Year two, you do want to see some progress. We do have to see a step in the right direction. That part obviously did not work out. Okay, well, now year three is that's like your put up or shut up. You've got to be a playoff team. You've got to, no one's saying they got to win the Super Bowl, but you've got to be a playoff team, especially the fact that seven make it in your conference, three wild cards. You, and the, the NFC South is, by right, all accounts, going to be weaker. Right. right? Brady's like, gone. Breeze is gone. Sean Payton's, Payton's gone. gone. Like, yeah, yeah. You've you got to compete now. You, you've got to have the Falcons are in a rebuild. They just brought in a new coach last year, Arthur Smith who's kind of, redo, kind of following the same sort of trajectory that the Panthers are trying to emulate as far as a rebuild. So it's a weak conference. That's going to be six of your games. You've got to win some of those. Like They have the path forward to find success and compete to find a playoff spot. Quarterback, as you said, that's the number one thing. They obviously went out and felt strongly about trading for Sam. He came in, got off to a really good start, had some struggles, then got hurt, and then they played musical chairs. They had P.J. Walker. They brought in Cam. And they just never really found your groove. And, and the reality of the NFL, we talked about this at the start of the show, if, you're, if you have multiple quarterbacks, you have none. <laughs> right? If you have two, you have none. Right. You, you got you to have a guy. And at any given moment, if Wednesday's press conference, the first question is who's starting at quarterback, you're in trouble. Yeah. Okay. It needs to be a foregone conclusion that come hell or high water, 0-3, 3-0, playoff run, disappointing season, if this guy's healthy, he's the quarterback. Like, they need – and now maybe Sam can develop into that, but obviously the first year due to injury and inconsistencies and whatnot, it didn't work out that way. That – it all starts there. Yeah. You can build the offensive line. You can build pass rushers. It doesn't matter. Right. If you don't get elite cons- – not even elite. If you don't get consistent quarterback play right. within the confines of the system that's being built out you – know, and now, again, they added a new coordinator – so that's turnover. That's now starting from the ground floor and have to build back up. You lose all those previous repetitions in that previous system. 
So they, they have some work to do, but your points are all true. Quarterback, consistency of a culture, picking a direction and sticking with it. And this third year is going to be the indication of whether all those things are working or not. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. <laughs> I, I don't have the crystal ball, but we'll all be following. We'll all be following. Last uh, football, and this is more. Yeah. Uh, this is one of the great stories of Greg Olson. <laughs> so uh, you could have been Gronkowski. Tell everybody what that means. <laughs> yeah. So so 2000. So all the way back. So I got I got drafted to Chicago in 2007. Um, you know, out of college and, and play there. They're coming off the Super Bowl. So they had just lost the previous year's Super Bowl to the Indianapolis Colts um, in, you know, the 2006 season rolling into seven. So I get drafted by them um, second to last of the first round since they were the runner-up. So here I am thinking I'm going into a great spot. We're going to be back in the Super Bowl whatnot. My first year, we kind of struggle. We don't make the playoffs my first, um, my first couple of years. So we finally make the playoffs in, 2000 and, in 2010. Well, coming off the 2009 season, I was our leading receiver. That was my third year in the league. Had a, at the time, if you had six, 700 yards in the NFL at tight end, that was like a great year. Yeah. Now, if you have 600 yards, you're not even in the top 10. Right. It's just, it's changed a lot. But at that time, it was a really good year. You know, you're a, you know, alternate Pro Bowl. Like, that's the kind of category that those numbers would get you early, you know, in that time. So anyway, fast forward, we fire our offensive coordinator. We fire our quarterbacks coach. We fire my tight ends coach. And we bring in Mike Martz, and we bring in some new offensive pieces. Lovey Smith felt the offense had gone stale under the previous coaching staff. So Mike Martz gets hired in 2009, and he comes in. Oh, he gets fired in 2010, and he comes in. And his first press conference that offseason is, any tight end who's not in line to block first, I have no real value in my system, right? Because now remember, he's coming from the greatest show on turf, right, right, Rams, four right. wide receivers, yeah, yeah, shotgun, yeah. Kurt Warner, Marshall, uh, Marshall Falk, you know, they're yeah. throwing the ball a thousand times. So I'm sitting here and I'm like, screw this guy, right? Like, who are you? Like, <laughs> I'm not saying I'm by any means a world beater, but like, I was pretty good last year. Like, I can play. Like, you don't even know me. Right. So we got off to a bad start and that's just kind of the personality that he has. So fast forward now to about draft time so we're going into that that draft that year and jerry angelo calls me into his office and says hey i'm just gonna let you know we have a trade on the table with the patriots and they're targeting a certain player it turned out it was gronkowski they at the time they had three second round picks and he goes if if gronkowski gets taken in the first round there was speculation about whether he'd be a first rounder or fall um if he goes in the first round and he's off the board we have a trade that they're going to give us one of their second round picks. They have three and we're going to send you to new England. So tomorrow just be around and you know, I'm just giving you the professional courtesy. What did, what did you think at that point? And at the time you're mad, right? Like you're offended. Yes. You're, the first instinct, anytime someone says it's not you, it's me. It's right. like when you break up, like you're offended. You can't help it, right? Your pride and your ego kicks in and you're like, you're like, no, no, I'm going to prove to you that I am good enough, right? Like that's your first reaction. Right, but right, then right. you take a step back and you're like, I'll go play with Brady. Like, that sounds pretty fun. <laughs> now, little did you know the career Gronk was going to have. At the time, right. Brady had never really had a tight end put up significant numbers, really. It was more Randy Moss and right. Wes Welker. So long story short, the following day, Gronkowski falls out of the first round. Belichick calls back. They're going to take Gronkowski with the second-round pick. They end up taking Aaron Hernandez, another tight end. So they load up on tight ends. So fast forward all the way to – so the deal falls through. Nice. I play for them in 2010. We make the NFC Championship. Yeah. I had a good season, not, a, not an amazing season, but a good season. We lose to Green Bay in the NFC Championship the following offseason. They end up trading me anyway to the Panthers, the worst team in the league. <laughs> but it all worked out. Uh, 
What's it like to play in the Super Bowl? Man, I'll tell you, that, there's not a day goes by. This is like the hardest time of the year for a mm -hmm. former or current player sitting at home watching other teams play in playoff games, conference championship games, and then the, obviously the two teams going to the Super Bowl. Like, it's the worst. Like, the day after, you're like, I want to play again. Like, I need, <laughs> right? Like, you, you, as happy as you are for them, right. you're like, if it's not me, it should be nobody. Like, that's kind of your mentality, right? Like, it's, it's, and again, it's probably not a very healthy <laughs> mentality, but like, you can't help it. Like, if you can't have it for yourself, like, you're like, this guy's going to go win a Super Bowl? That guy? You know what I mean? Like, you can't, it, it's just, I, I think all players feel the way. So anyway, thinking back, there's not a day or a situation that doesn't remind you of like, what could have been that year. We had such a, if we win that game, we have arguably the greatest year in NFL history. Right. We would have been 18 and one. Won the most games ever. Granted, the the Dolphins had gone undefeated and won the Super Bowl, but they had only played 14 games, so they finished like 16 and 0 or 17 and 0 or whatever it was. Right. We would have been 18 and 1 Super Bowl champs, huh. best year of all time, and we just go out there and just lay a complete egg. Greg, I was there, uh, and I, when I saw the first pass from Cam, who was like 10 feet too high. Yeah, was, you can tell off. the nervousness was you know, everywhere. The, I would say the weirdest feeling of that game was. It ends. And at no point did it ever feel like we were going to lose. We, like, we were terrible on offense, but our defense was rolling and we were getting the ball back. And we were down one score in yeah. the second half. And we're like, we are the number one offense in the league. At some point, we're just going to break free. Right? Like, we're going to have our drive. And after all this, we're going to take the lead. And we're going to take a deep breath. And we're going to be good. We just got to find that one drive. And then we'd find that one drive and we'd have a turnover. We'd find that one drive and then something oh. else. Like, we oh. just... Even the drives we started sustain, and then I'll never forget, you know, you're walking off the field, they're celebrating, their confetti's falling, and everyone's celebrating, and you literally get to the locker room, and it feels like the game was a minute long. You're like, really? it's over. It's like your wedding. It's, it's like your wedding. You look forward to it and forward to it and forward to it, and then it ended so fast that you're like, you would have given anything to be like, no, 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 we got to go back and start over. Like, no, that was like practice. That was like the dress rehearsal. That didn't count. But this is not a best of five series. This is not best of seven. You get uh, one shot. And we played our worst game of the season on the biggest stage. And we thought we'd get back there. We, we thought the, pre the next couple of years, we thought we had a team equally, if not better. And, um, you know, just it takes a lot of factors to align. And we just never could really get back over the hump. But we had it uh, in front of us. And... They were better than us that day, but I don't. I still would never say that they were better than us. Yeah, yeah, not not with Manning at that we, stage no. in his career, right? He was we just, just kind of managing a game. Yep. Yeah. So, um, who wins the Super Bowl? I mean, I, I love. Got, I got my opinion. I I love, I love the story of the Bengals. I I'll be honest. I picked the Chiefs last week. I thought the winner of the yeah. Chiefs Buffalo game was going to be the AFC representative. I thought right. that was really the conference championship. So I was wrong last week. I didn't think in a million years Joe, uh, the Bengals could win. I think Joe Burrow is fantastic. I think he's awesome. I just think they're early in their rebuild. I think they're further along than maybe anyone even they would say, if they're being honest, of where they thought they'd be in year three of this Burrow era. Um, I think the Rams are really good. I think the Rams, th that's who I'm picking. I, think, I really like Stafford. I think it's a great story. I think it's a story of we want to judge people by their surroundings so often and sometimes their surroundings are what's the only thing preventing them from really fulfilling their potential. And I think in the NFL, we want to place legacy and we want to place perspective mm -hmm. on career versus another guy's career. And all it took for 
Matt Stafford didn't control. He got drafted to Detroit. He was right. the number one overall pick. If another franchise had happened to have the number one pick, who knows what his 10-year career prior to this would have been. And all it took right. was a change of scenery, being in the right system with the right scheme and the right players. And in one year, he's in the Super Bowl. Right. Well, what if he had five years? His career would be looked at completely different, and it's out of, completely out of his control. So I'm rooting for him. I love Sean McVay. Um, and I think they got real dudes that can rush the passer. And I think Cincinnati's offensive line is the weakness of their team. Right. So I, I saw the line yesterday was three and a half. And this is not gambling advice for anybody. But, <laughs> I, but I think the Rams are going to yeah. blow them I think them so, off. too. Yeah, I think, it's I think so, too. Um, all right. So you moved to the booth. Yep. Um, uh, <laughs> did you drop your first NFL pass? I, you know, I, I did not drop my first NFL pass. But I probably dropped my first NFL oh broadcast open right. tell us about that that's so, that was a leading question yeah I, I kind of knew where you were heading on that um no my, my first NFL pass I caught thankfully my rookie year I'll never I, I remember it was Sunday night football against the Cowboys at home my first game I played as a rookie I caught the ball so thankfully I got off to a good start but my first game in the booth so my first full season this year um since retiring the first game of the year we had the Falcons and the Eagles down in Atlanta and, you know, everyone talks about the open and it really turns out it's not that big of a deal. But at the time, it's your first time you go live and you're like all week. I'm like, I got to have a great open. It'll start the it'll start the broadcast the right way. Did you do it in the mirror? Or yeah. You're, you're like, like <laughs> the whole night you're laying in bed and you have like your your thoughts. You're like, all right, when I talk about the Falcons, I'm going to talk about this. And when I talk about the Eagles, I'm going to talk about this. And it's going to be great. It's going to be 90 seconds. Were you or nervous? No, I, I don't think it's necessarily like nerves, but there's like an anxiousness that like you just want to start. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. you just want to like rip the Band-Aid off and go. Let's go. And like I'm always such a firm believer. Like my goal as a player was always like have a great first drive. Yeah. Catch a ball, get a good block, get tackled, get knocked. It just like yeah. get to a good start and typically the game unfolds well from there. If you, the first ball you drop, the first time you block, you get beat. You're like, holy crap, I'm right, in trouble, right. right? Like, So that was my approach with this. I'm like have a great open. You know, be clear, be concise, be fun, keep it light. So I'm talking about that the Falcons had traded Julio Jones and they have a new coach, Arthur Smith. So here I am in the middle of the open and I'm going to talk about Arthur Smith coming over from Tennessee and his offense and blah, blah, blah. But Arthur Smith doesn't have Julio Jones anymore. And, right. and I'm like, and here you have new coach who just came over from the Tennessee Titans, Arthur Jones. And he's a, so I just keep going, but I hear myself say it and I'm like, well, I can't go back now. So I just finish it at the open ended, and I was like, well, that was exactly the opposite of what I was looking for. And, but the biggest lesson I had out of that was nobody even noticed. Right, right. right. Like it felt like, the, it felt like such a big deal to me because I had hyped up that open. Right. And the reality is people haven't even switched the channel on yet. Right. No one, right? Like it just, it was like a really good example. Like, all right. It's over. Go have a good showcase. No one even knows. At the end of the game, no one even talked about it. But it was like a good reminder. Like, live TV ain't easy now. You better have your you better have your stuff together, or else it's quite easy to have a have a slip. You know. Yeah. How about that mute button? Sat on the mute button. I just had. I appreciate you bringing out all my highlights. So, so we we typically would do our on cameras with our backs away from the field. So like we'd have a backdrop behind us. Well, we did an NFL Network game on Thursday night before Christmas, we had the national NFL network game down in Nashville with the Titans and um, 49ers. And, and the NFL broadcast, you network broadcast, you flip and you actually put your back to the field. You see like the NBC yeah, yeah, crew yeah, guys yeah, yeah, with yeah. Collinsworth and them, they have the back to the field. Each network does it a little different. 
but the the press box in Nashville is really small down in Tennessee, and my like I have this box where I can hit buttons and it's a cough button. It's a dump. It's a callback to my producer. There's right, like a few right. buttons on it, but it can kill my mic. Like if I want to cough or I want right. to say something to someone next to me, it'll just kill anything I say and allow me to speak without it going over the broadcast air. So I, they go, all right, guys on camera, turn around. So we turn around and I sit <laughs> on the ledge of the counter and I start to talk. But national like, TV, national television. There's millions of people watching. But there's my mouth moving, but there's no noise coming out. So like we are right now, we hear ourselves in these headphones. Right. I hear nothing. Right. I'm just talking. I'm like, I'm just going to go with it because it could be a technical difficulty. I don't pretend to know enough about it. And all of a sudden, my partner, Kevin Burkhart, kind of like jokingly really in stride on air. He's like, dude. Are you sitting on the mute button? So here I am, like, talking on live television, and I kind of, like, lift my butt up, and I'm like, oh, yeah. So I grab the box, and we slide it back, and we just jump right back into it. We just keep talking. It was just, like, a fun, like, light moment, you know, to just, like, we're not doing brain surgery. Right, right. We're we're doing a football broadcast. Like, it's a reminder, again, like, just have fun and go with it. It's really not that serious, and if you make a mistake or you do something stupid, just own it and just go with it. Who cares? But isn't that life? It's it. It's life. Totally. Yeah, you know, I um, I had a ton of people throughout the year that knew you and I were friends say, dude, your buddy's really good. Oh. Like, he's really, really good, right? And uh, I asked you after the season, what, what grade do you give yourself? So uh, I think you are as talented as I've heard anybody first year in the booth. What is your aspiration and how do you grade your year? Well, I appreciate that. Um, you know, I, I get asked this a lot. Like, what do you think? And the, the problem is I don't have a great frame of perspective to base it off of, right? I've, I've only done, I had done two games prior. Back in 2017, I did a game. In 2019, I did like two one-offs. So this was my first full slate. I base my feedback on like people that I trust and people that I know. And I know people who are not just telling me what I want to hear, right? Like certain people are like, oh, you did great. And they've never heard me. But like people who I know wouldn't say, they might not say, wow, you sucked. They probably just wouldn't say anything. But like when you get a random text from a former coach or you get a random text from somebody in the industry or a, f- a former broadcaster who's like, hey, I tuned in for your game. You did a great job. Like really enjoyed it. Like to me, those are the moments you, you base your opinions on and you're like, all right, good feedback. They might give you a little pointer or whatnot. Like from trusted resources, like I'm all ears. And, and I told my, pr- my production crew, my producer and director have been doing this for 40 years. I said, hey guys, like tell me. Like I can only know what I'm doing wrong or what I can improve at if you tell me. Because all I know is what I know. And if you don't tell me anything, I'm going to assume I'm awesome, <laughs> right? Like I'm going to assume that whatever I'm doing, just right, keep right. doing it. So like give me that feedback. So listen, I have so much. So what's the feedback? What do you need to you get know, better at? So, and I think I told you this the other day when we were together, like my biggest, I don't want to say struggle, like my biggest thing I need to continue to remind myself of, and I'm sure people listening to this podcast will be like, yeah, I can see that. Like I tend to sometimes go for a long time because like I have a lot of information that I feel is interesting and I want to get it all out. So when I was a player, we, you know, it's like paralysis by analysis is kind of yeah. like the word. Like when I was a player, I could see on any given play, pre and post snap, both safeties, the backside corner, the linebacker, where the D end is. And like at times it was great and at times it was a hindrance because at times it was like stop, pick the nearest guy and run with or not. Right. And when, right, like that was my evolution of my career. So yeah. it's kind of the same thing now with the broadcast. When I'm watching from the, from the box, 
I can see the entire field. I can see the sideline. I can see the coach running to call timeout. I can see, I can see all this happening simultaneously. The problem is I have like 15 seconds between plays from the end of the play whistle to when my play-by-play guy steps out. For my analysis prior to the next snap, I got to be out so he can take over play-by-play. So there's like this dance, right? And you go back and forth and you get a, a rapport and a cadence with your partner you got 15 seconds. You can't give 400 points. First of all, you're going to sound ridiculous. You're going to go long, and people are going to have no idea what you're talking about. But like, it makes sense in my head, but you can't communicate it. All right. So picking the most important point of a play and saying, if I can't get the second most point, I'll come back to it. Yeah. yeah. When I have a, so like to me, is just being selective on the information that I share. And just because I think three things are interesting doesn't mean I can communicate three things. And in essence, I communicate nothing. Right. I would say that's like my biggest thing that I have to just continue to remind myself of um, and put myself in the shoes of the viewer. Yeah, yeah. So um, I have a feeling, and I'm going to call it here first, that you're going to have a long, long career, and you'll be one of those guys that is under consideration for Hall of Fame on both sides. I think you're that talented, and I think you're that crazy. I am crazy. I am crazy. (laughs) I would say that's a fair (laughs) statement. Yeah. John Madden just passed. Uh, when you when you think of him uh, and you think of his, his legacy yep. and, and now your line of business, what what uh, what do you like to be uh, or emulate from him? Yeah, and it was so I don't want to say cool because it was it was obviously sad and tragic for for his passing during the season. But the the one positive of the whole thing is we got to kind of experience the aftermath of that with the season going on and from the broadcast booth and be able to pay tribute to him and like to have the ability to reflect on like all of my experiences and we had some cool moments on air my first ever touchdown pass we actually showed on air the week after the weekend after Madden had passed all the broadcast teams were doing a lot of tributes and and recognizing his contributions to not only Fox but just around the the league and my production crew surprised me I didn't know they were doing it coming out of a break they went to a flashback and my first ever touchdown that I caught on Sunday night football at the time Madden was the broadcaster. So they showed it oh, cool. and they had John Madden talking about this rookie Olsen out of Miami, you know, first touchdown, whatever. Yeah. So like having that opportunity to reflect back and like my kids here, they are, I'm 37 almost. And they're playing Madden. Dad, you want to go play Madden? Dad, play me in Madden. Dad, you want, yeah. but like, I remember sitting in my, in my room as a young kid, their age, if not younger, like playing Madden on Sega and Nintendo. Like he was a part of your, my life in my entire experience of football. Like he was the voice that narrated as a little kid playing video games as a viewer and then eventually as a player. And now here I am, you know, in a similar line of work that what he did, he was the pioneer of the industry. He created so many new elements. I don't think anyone in their right mind would ever even attempt to like draw parallels. But like when you think of John Madden to be able to make the impact as a coach, a commentator, and then as the video game, which has probably lasted longer than any of it, you'd argue that not many people have had that sort of impact on the NFL over the course of their life. That is so awesome. Yeah. Um, let's get a little personal yeah. to wrap up here. Um, father of three, super committed uh, to them, to youth sports, to all of that. Uh, I can tell you really like being a dad. I do. Um, tell us about your journey, and then let's yeah. get into TJ a little bit and get an yeah. update on him. I, I really do enjoy being a dad. I, I always say um, – you know, when I was finishing my career and I was having some of my better seasons, my career got better 
the more complicated my life got, meaning I got married. Right. So for the, my, like mo, I, I dated my wife pretty much throughout college, but like there's a big difference between dating someone in college where like your life still revolved around yourself. Right. My workouts were always number one, my games, my practice, my prep, like that selfishness was just kind of part of the deal when you were trying to kind of pave your way in, in that world. And then through, as my career, you know, then you get married. Now you're responsible for one other person other than yourself. And then as time went on, all of a sudden, my career kind of followed the trajectory of as my personal life kind of expanded in responsibilities, getting married in 2009, and then my first son being born in 2011, and then the twins being born in 2012. And here we were, like my best time of my career was in those, those period of time when I started to be a dad and really develop as a family. And I don't find that to be a coincidence. Like it was really a time where I had to be very focused and be very time or you know be up time management and prioritize when i'm home i'm home when i'm at the field i've got to turn that off and like my wife is the all-time best at that like if she if the house wasn't burning down she was going to handle it yeah. and she knew like when i was at work like i needed to be there and she's a big reason why i was able to be so committed and be sort of crazy and hyper focused because she allowed me to be that and there it wasn't a mystery like as everything went on with TJ, I had my best seasons. As things, like I believe wholeheartedly that that was all connected because I had no choice. Like if I didn't compartmentalize all the important aspects of my life and make sure I didn't blend it all together and try to be everything at one time, I would have been crappy at everything. I would have been a bad dad, a bad husband, and a bad football player. Well here, I really had the ability to silo these priorities in my life and you could ask, ask my wife if I failed in the, par in the husband role, but I feel like I've done well in the, in the football role, the, par the parent role. I guess the jury would be out if my wife thinks I'm we'll, <laughs> succeeding. We'll, we'll, we'll hold that for that. episode two. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I do, I enjoy the challenge of being a parent. I enjoy raising three. I have two boys and a girl. The, bo uh, the youngest two are twins, TJ and Talbot, you know, have very different interests, have very different, yeah. uh, outlooks on life and and it's a challenge and at times it's frustrating like anything else but also like anything else the most challenging and difficult things are always the most rewarding and I love having the time home I love coaching their teams I love picking them up from carpool I'm like that dad who's like the first guy in carpool that I'm like in the way because I'm too early for the grade <laughs> before us you know like I have to like get out of the way and the direct they're like you're too I'm like like I I enjoy that part of it and uh I've always tried to find that balance. And I think sometimes finding that balance for everybody is hard. Yeah. I, you know, um, in honor of all the wives and husbands that support many of us in yep. our crazy careers, uh, you know, Brenda, my wife yep. also has held the fort down yeah. for, for many, many, many times. And, uh, I've, I've only gotten the uh, the house burning down call a couple times, <laughs> yeah. and it's in the teenager years. Yeah. So uh, uh, brace, it's coming. I, it, I can, <laughs> I totally feel that. And, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's impossible. And again, I don't want to speak too generally, but like in my perspective, like it's impossible to not have great people around you, whether it's your, no. your wife, your husband, your significant other, your, your parents, like it's really hard to have a career and passions and things that you really care about deeply that are outside of your family unit and not have those people support you and pick up the slack yeah. and, fill those gaps along the way to allow you to pursue those other things. Like, I don't know how you, how someone could do it without that support. You know, one of the, 
the amazing things seeing your family's journey through kind of TJ's condition mm-hmm. and, and all the things you guys had to kind of endure and how you guys showed up in the community and how the community rallied for mm-hmm. you guys. When, when Charlotte lit up for TJ, yeah, that was one of the most Wild. inspirational things I've ever seen. But you earned that. Now, you earned that by the way that you guys, you know, showed up and uh, as a family. And uh, I just wanted to say that as I've always Why? admired kind of, you know, the same ish, the same thing is you're not a leader it's the same thing here. Yeah. Like everybody, you, well, I appreciate you that. How is TJ doing? I, well, I appreciate you saying that. Um, you know, we, TJ's first of all, he's doing great. He's, he's back in school. He's playing on a baseball team. That's just kind of starting to gear up a little bit. He, I, we feel like we've finally seen him kind of ter- take the corner. They told us the first year um, he's on a ton of medicine and immunosuppressants. And he's also getting a heart transplant in the midst of a pandemic which was a whole nother whole song and a dance that we had to navigate and that was crazy mm. um but all in all like he's doing really well he's getting his strength back his confidence is back you know he's just and that's a big thing for him is just to continue to build him up and and tell him like you don't need any more he's he was so used to for eight years he had no choice but to subconsciously kind of check himself and mm. reserve and like de- you know mm. downshift because mm. he was always careful and con- like i can't do too much and now we're like go you don't need to rel- like to really like hold back like just go right. if you want to run run if you want to go like you don't need to be scared anymore but it's all he ever knew but he he's really starting to come out of his shell and, and we've seen a lot of progress from him but he's had a hell of a journey i mean he all he knew in his first eight years from the second night he was born was obstacle and perseverance and difficulty and a lot of it he doesn't remember thank god but this past experience he does remember you know he's eight he's eight years old laying in a hospital bed being told he's in heart failure and that he's gonna have to stay in the hospital for who knows how long because he's gonna be put on the heart transplant list and he was old enough to consciously recognize that and as were his siblings right and you know his twin sister and then our oldest Tate so that was a lot for him to process. And it was really the first time he had to process it because he had his first open heart surgery at two days old. He has no idea anything that happened unless we show him a picture. His second one was at six months old, has no idea. And the third one was at two years old. So like all of that stuff, he only knows through our stories. He only knows through telling our stories at the foundation events and all that stuff. So this was really the first major, major event that he had regarding his health and whatnot that he consciously lived through. And we had to be very conscious of like his mental health and making sure we talked. We brought in some professionals. The hospital were amazing in that regard. Like they allocated some resources where if he or his brother and sister or even Kara and I like needed someone to talk to, wasn't a doctor, doctor like a cardiologist, but just someone to say like, TJ, what you're feeling is normal. Are you nervous? Are you fearful? What's your concerns? Like really went a long way. And it's still a conversation that goes on to this day. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> it's a wild journey. I'll tell you for anyone, when we explain like the whole process of heart transplant, this will be a conversation over a, a bottle of wine, but yeah. it's wild what these doctors can do. Amazing. It's wild. Amazing. They're literally bringing a heart in a cooler. We don't know from where they're not allowed to tell us it's all anonymous. One doctor literally flies on a plane to wherever, wherever. Philadelphia. Yeah. I, we have no idea yeah. wherever. The, the, the other heart surgeon stays and TJ is opened up, heart taken out, put on the bypass machine, and oh then you wait. Goodness. 
Oh my goodness. And then that doctor calls and says, we're on our way. And that's how they time it up. So they can't, they can't say the heart is ready because you got like a four hour blind window before that heart is deteriorating yeah, right. when it gets taken out of the donor. So you can't start, it took eight hours just to cut TJ open. So there's times, thankfully it doesn't happen often, where they open the oh. recipient, the, doc, the one doctor goes to the donor right. and says, nope, not a good match. Doesn't, until they put their eyes on it, they oh. don't confirm it, whatever they're right, basing right, that right, on. Right, I, don't, right, I don't know the specs, but, and then you don't get the heart. So like there's this weird there's this weird like dance. Uh, so then they thankfully it was a good heart. They jump in a plane, they come back, and the second that heart gets wheeled in the OR, he's open on bypass, put in, unclamp, start the blood because they got to get that thing pumping again. I can't. Imagine. It's a wild. It's a wild. It's a wild whole uh, series of events. Uh, this is like a two bottle wine. Yeah, this, this is a long. Yeah, this is. We'll we'll finish that story over a, on another day, but. Uh, our, our biggest thing, and I, and I just, not to prolong it, but I think this is important. Like, we share our story, and yes, it is about TJ, and we are proud of him, and we do believe his story needs to be told, but this isn't like an Olsen story, right? This is happening to families everywhere. Mm. Families that have a lot of opportunities and resources like we did to get great level of care, and families who don't, mm. and families who can't just call up a doctor and say, we need him to be seen and get in there. Like, that's the reality, right? We share our story because the amount of people that have reached out to us from all areas of the country, whether it's on social media or through email or letters in the mail that said like, we were at our lowest of lows. We thought we were the only people in the world suffering from a, from a situation like mm. this. And we came across your story or we saw the video of TJ or we saw your post on Instagram or whatever, whatever they, they saw our charity event or whatever it was. And we knew we weren't alone. We weren't the only ones going through this. And we bear down. And now our son, daughter is eight years old and just made the drama team, whatever. Like, that's why we do it. Mm. Because the story needs to be shared, not for us. It's right. not going to, our lives aren't going to change, right? We're not raising money to affect our ability to get health care. We're fortunate in that regard. But when we can open up our, our heart center at the Levine Children's Hospital, and now every single family in the congenital heart world, steps through those doors on a daily basis for any element of care that their child needs in the cardiac space. That's why we do it, mm. right? Like mm. our son, our son was going to get treatment, whether that place was built or not, right. but not everyone else has maybe had access to that, but now they do. And that's like, that's why we do it. And that's why we share our story because it allows us to fundraise. It allows us to network. It allows us to share our struggles so that other people's struggles maybe can be a little less crappy and that's that's what it we, what we call leaving the woodpile higher try that is, that is amazing greg this has been so much fun this was a blast um you know I, I in this conversation i know you as a as a smart guy fiercely competitive interesting interested but the element that i get out of this conversation is really how much growth it's in you like how much through, you know, transition of careers and your ability to reflect through parenting, through, you know, your new job and all that, like you are in the midst of this amazing growth story. And uh, I just well, I really want to see. So, well, I appreciate it. you've been a great friend. I, I don't know if you always know, but I'm always like slowly picking your brain for <laughs> your, I just think your perspective, not only how you run your company, how you balance your family and your company and your business and other endeavors, like. I'm just always really fascinated to be around highly motivated 
and interesting, intelligent people because I feel like that's the best way to learn, right? That's the best, surround yourself with people who know more than you is like, to me, the best way to advance and to open up my perspective and open up, I never, you know, I never thought of it that way or that's a really way, like, so just, I've always appreciated your friendship. I appreciate you having me on here and, you know, your mentorship over the years and allowing me to pick your brain and send you a note or play in basketball. Take, take it easy <laughs> on me next time. I'm, I'm well, I appreciate player. it. Thanks for letting me. This was a blast. All right, brother. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Bye. What a blast. So many things that came out of that conversation that I took away, but here are my top three. Number one, and it has to do with Greg's Super Bowl experience. The reality that in life, there's no dress rehearsal. We never know when the opportunity presents itself and if it will be the last time for us to perform at our best. Number two, life sometimes has way too many priorities. Greg's example of being able to compartmentalize allowed him to be at his best when life was at its busiest. And number three is that a lot of success in life has to do with running where they're not, being willing to be a contrarian and see things differently, and having the conviction to pursue those beliefs result in bigger rewards. Rick shared his three things, but we want to know your takeaways as well. Tweet at Rick Elias to let us know your thoughts on this conversation. And be sure to check out additional content, videos, and more at our blog, threethings.redventures.com. Thanks for listening.